Good morning. I'm David Pauls. I'm one of the elders here at Faith E-Free. This morning we will be celebrating communion. If, as I mentioned before, if you didn't pick up one of the containers, this would be a good time to go ahead and grab one um, with the elements. For those of us who are joining us online, you can use whatever bread and drink are available. This morning as we celebrate communion, let us consider what the body and blood of Christ means for us. We talk about saving souls and souls going on forever, but the body is not just a carrier for the soul. It is through the body that we experience and interact with the world and those around us. The integration of the body with the soul is how we exist and move within the world around us. It's through the body that we have a presence to those around us. It is through the body that we relate to each other and represent the presence of Christ within us. In the words of Christ, he stated that the bread represented his body. The bread is to remind us of the presence of Christ, who is with us not just this morning, but at all times, working in us and through us. We are gathered in his name. He is with us. The bread is to help us to remember that. The cup itself represents the new covenant in the blood of Christ. Blood through the ages has represented the life force within it. Blood is necessary for the continuation of life. We talk of blood shed or blood being spilt when we talk about the loss of life in war or other conflicts. The cup is representative of the blood of Christ, the life of Christ, sacrificed for us to be able to attain our new life with him. With the cup, we are to remember the sacrifice that he made for us so that we could be reconciled or put right with God. It is through the blood, the life of Christ, that we have access to eternal life. And eternal life doesn't just mean living forever, but it means living meaningfully forever. We are to remember this with the cup of Christ. Here at Faith, we practice open communion. The elements are available to all those who have called on the name of Jesus and given their life over to him. If you have not made that commitment, we ask that you abstain from partaking in the elements and use this time to consider the claim of Christ, that he is the way, the truth, and the life, and that no one comes to the Father but through him. Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink of it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Father, we thank you for your presence and life that you have made available to us. We ask that you bless this remembrance of your body and blood. Make us constantly aware of your presence among us. We ask this in your name. Amen. Scripture, oh, sorry. This morning, our scripture comes from Colossians 3, 15 through 17. I'll be reading from the NIV. If you wouldn't mind standing for the word of the Lord. 
Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you are called to peace. And be thankful. Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Happy New Year. (laughs) Good to see you all here today. Well, the passage we're discussing today that Dave just read uh, is something that I'd actually consider kind of a calling verse for uh, my occupation here at Faith. Uh, These verses drive everything that I do at this church. It is the what, the why, and the how for every detail that I plan for this time together. So I'm excited to study it with you this morning, and my hope during this time together is to see that the gospel would have its rightful place of authority in our relationships with one another and with God. We have a corporate calling, if you will, and Paul's aim in this passage is to show us what this corporate calling is and what this corporate calling is going to require of each of us individually. Now, we aren't in a sermon series on Colossians, and so I think it'd be appropriate for me to give you just a very brief summary of kind of what the surrounding verses of what Dave read earlier are about, just to give us a little bit of context. The Colossian church was overall a thriving church. It was growing. It was healthy. But as with many other churches Paul dealt with, rather than living in the new way of the gospel, the Colossians were being pulled into rules about eating and drinking religious festivals, new moon celebrations, and Sabbath adherence. And while none of these things are inherently evil, Paul does say that these things are simply a shadow of the things that were to come. That the reality, however, is found in Christ. Paul combats this way of thinking by just beautifully exalting Jesus Christ as the foundation for which we build our lives In chapter 2, he says, For in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. Paul paints this amazing picture to the Colossians of the beauty, the splendor, and glory of Jesus. And he goes on to say that in this glorious Christ, you have been brought to fullness. It's incredible. You lack nothing because of Jesus residing in you through the Holy Spirit. And I love what he says in chapter 3, verse 4. He says, Christ, who is your life, you need nothing else. As believers, we are so tightly knit with Jesus Christ that he is now our very life. He's not an accessory. He's not an addition that we add on to our lives. But he is our lives. We have been transformed And Paul is trying to help the Colossian church understand that they don't need anything else other than the gospel message they had already received with joy. That this new reality in which they live now dictates their relationships with God, one another, and everything that they say and do. 
God had not simply called the Colossians to be his people, but also to live a certain kind of life, a life that is marked by the gospel. Now, what we're going to see today is that their calling, as well as our calling, is bound up in the gospel, and it cannot be separated from it. It is this calling that we're studying today, and because of God's calling us to be the body of Christ, we have an obligation to live at peace with one another and to preach the gospel to one another. That's our obligation. So that's where we're at in verse 15. Chapter 3, verse 15, Paul says this. He says, Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you were called to peace, and be thankful. So what does it mean for the peace of Christ to rule in our hearts? The peace Paul referring to here is not some private and inward peace of the soul or some peaceful disposition of the Spirit. God absolutely does provide those things for us. But Paul here is referring to a peace that is more corporate in nature. He's not writing to an individual, but he's writing to a church, a body of believers. And the verses leading up to this all have corporate implications. Paul specifically mentions that this peace exists because we are members of one body. And what I believe Paul is saying here is that there is not only a vertical dimension to our peace, that is with God, but there is also a horizontal dimension to our peace and our relationship with others. Because we are now reconciled to God through Jesus Christ, we also, as members of one body, have been reconciled to one another. The gospel is not just between you and God. It is between you and the person to your left and to your right. But how does this peace rule in our hearts? The Greek word for rule used by Paul originally referred to the function of an umpire who presided over and presented prizes at the games in that day. Literally translated, it means that the peace of Christ is to act as umpire. Think of a modern-day umpire for baseball. What does he or she do? In most general sense, they judge, they decide, or they rule over the affairs of the game. The umpire facilitates the game so that it operates within a certain set of boundaries in hopes that the sport can be enjoyed by everyone. This is analogous to the role of Christ's peace in our lives as well. In all inner conflicts as well as in all disputes and differences among Christians. Christ's peace must give the final decision. We are to do nothing that would violate that peace. But how is this peace different from the world? See, worldly wisdom has a very different view of peace. What does the world tell us to do? What the world tells us to do is to simply lay aside our differences so that we can all get along. Okay, you be you, let me be me, and we'll be great. Just stop judging me, and we'll be fine. If we just put aside our differences, hold hands, and sing kumbaya, everything is going to be all right, okay? But that can't be the peace of Christ, can it? There has to be something different about the community of believers that separates us. 
This way of thinking has the appearance of wisdom, but it lacks any real power to unite people in love. Peace within the body of Christ must mean more. So what does this peace really look like? As members of the body of Christ, Paul wants to make peace the arbiter, the intermediary that should be given preference over competing concerns and interests. Without sacrificing principle, believers should relate to one another in a way that facilitates and demonstrates the peace that Christ has secured for them. We see this in Romans 14, 19. You see, the peace that the world offers is cheap. There is no substance to it. There's no foundation. There's no resiliency to it. Rather, the peace of Christ is immensely costly. It came at the cost of Jesus' life, the Son of God. Therefore, the peace we will try to preserve with one another is also going to be costly. In order for the peace of Christ to rule in our hearts, we need to be willing to give something up. Studying this passage this week has actually been um, quite convicting for me as I've considered in my own life what it looks like for this peace of Christ to rule in my heart. I've been confronted by the Holy Spirit of my own obsession for control. I think I'm probably the most controlling person that I know. And, I'm, uh, yeah, and I've seen how my desire to hold on to control or to hold on to some expectation or some outcome of something that has led the peace of Christ to be disrupted not only in my own life but in my relationships with others. My wife can attest to this more than anyone else. But I've also seen this sin rear its ugly head here at Faith as well. There had been many moments in staff meetings where I have not let the peace of Christ rule in my heart. I've become angry and upset and have said things that I shouldn't. Instead of living in submission to Jesus' rule in my life, I've instead let my flesh determine right and wrong. And I've sought to claw my way into getting what I want or what I think is best. And this is absolutely against what Paul is advocating here in this passage. And uh, yeah, I just, and I want to confess to my fellow pastors, like, I just, would you forgive me for that? And any elders, if I've ever sought my own agenda above the peace with you, I just ask that you would forgive me for that. And with the help of the Holy Spirit, I am vigorously seeking repentance, that I might offer my convictions, because I do have something to contribute. I do want to offer my convictions in these times, but I am committing myself to doing it with open hands and a surrendered heart. I'm absolutely committing myself to live in submission to the peace of Christ. To be at peace with one another, it is absolutely necessary that we as individuals are living in submission to the Lordship of Christ. Are your prerogatives submitted to Christ? Are your preferences submitted to Christ? Is your agenda submitted to Christ. Think about your workplace, your home, your friends. Do you see how this wisdom from God is so powerful? 
Because the peace of Christ is sacrificial, the peace with which we have with one another as members of his body actually has integrity. It has a backbone. It's not weak. The peace which should facilitate our relationships with one another derives its power from a God who gave everything for us. Again, I'm not saying we sacrifice principle here. The peace of Christ in our hearts does not mean we simply turn a blind eye to wrong. It doesn't mean we become flimsy and don't hold on to convictions. But it does mean that we have to be willing to lay aside everything that we think is so right and submit those things to the Lordship of Jesus, who is head over the body. We no longer get to decide the outcomes of things. We let him decide. He is the judge. He is the umpire. We are called to submit to him. Lastly, Paul tells the Colossians to be thankful. This absolute call to be thankful is to acknowledge our dependence on God's grace through Jesus Christ. It is a thankfulness that once more is a call to submit to Jesus as Lord. And it also introduces the theme of worship, both corporately, as we're going to see in verse 16, as well as individually in verse 17. So verse 16, Paul goes on to say, says, let the message of Christ dwell among you richly. And so not only should the peace of Christ rule in our hearts, but the message of Christ is to dwell among us richly. And this message of Christ could mean a few different things. Paul could be referring to the actual words of Jesus. At this time, the Gospels in their written form as we know them today did not yet exist. So it's more likely that Paul is referring to the Gospel in in general, the more broad saving message of Jesus Christ. But honestly, I really don't think there needs to be a distinction here. I think it's both. The message of Christ, both his words on earth as well as the truth of the gospel in its entirety, is to be the message that indwells his people. And I find it brilliant that one method in which Paul prescribes for the message of Christ to dwell among us richly is through singing. He says, singing to one another through psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Basically, there's no music out of bounds here. Our hope is that everything that we do here today would serve to allow the message of Christ to dwell among us. That's the goal of this sermon. But there is undoubtedly something very powerful and unique about singing. It has been said that songs are portable theology. Very few of you are going to leave here today humming the words of this sermon on your car ride home. However, it is quite possible that the words we sang earlier may be hummed by you as you eat dinner this evening or as you put your kids to sleep. Perhaps this week, in an unexpected moment, the words we sang, I am chosen, I'm not forsaken, I am who you say I am, oh, how he loves us. Perhaps that may ring in your mind in the most unexpected moment. 
Worship through singing is uniquely powerful for us because it is not just something that we do. Rather, singing does something to us. Philosopher and theologian James K.A. Smith, he says this. He says, worship works from the top down, you might say. In worship, we don't just come to show God our devotion and give him our praise. We are called to worship because in this encounter, God remakes and molds us top down. Worship is the arena in which God recalibrates our hearts, reforms our desires, and he rehabituates our loves. So what's he saying here? The point is that worship isn't just something that we do. Worship does something to us. It's formational. Worship in all things, but especially through song, is the heart of discipleship because it is the gymnasium in which God retrains our hearts. God reshapes our desires and our affections through singing. When we sing, we are retraining our hearts to love God above all else, to love one another, to love our neighbors. Singing does to our hearts what lifting weights in the gym does to our muscles. It requires effort. Over time, with practice, repetition, our hearts and our minds are formed through the songs we sing, formed to love God in deeper ways. Worship through song is also powerful because unlike this sermon, it's one of the acts we actually get to do together in this service. When we sing, we are not only expressing our love for God, but we are also ministering to one another. You see, just as the peace of Christ is not just purely vertical, but also horizontal, so too our worship is not just vertical, but has horizontal implications. Paul specifically says, singing to one another. When we sing, we are declaring to God and to one another the things that are most true. A word often heard regarding church worship is liturgy. Every church has it. No church doesn't have liturgy. Liturgy, or in the Greek, letorgia, literally means work of the people. So what we do here is not the work of Logan. This is not the work of Steve. This is not the work of Brian. Rather, this is the work of the people, of all of us together. And did you realize that when you came to worship today, you came to do work? Your participation is imperative. That's why we not only ask you to sing out loud, but to confess sins out loud, to confess creeds, to pray prayers out loud together. This thing that we do in this room is not a spectator activity, nor is it just about you. We do not come in order that we may get our fill for the day. I mean, certainly, we hope you leave encouraged. That would be amazing. We do want that. But there is something much deeper going on in our gathering. You came not only to be ministered to, 
but also to minister to those in front of you, to your left and to your right. Our singing is a way in which we preach sermons to one another. Singing does something that I cannot do in this sermon. We get to do theology together as a family. And I understand some of you might say, Logan, I, I really appreciate what you're saying, but here's the thing, I'm just not the singing type, okay? It's just not me. I don't do it. Listen, when it comes to the historic tradition of the Christian church from the very beginning, and even more that than that, the testimony of Scripture itself, singing has been the defining mark of Christians. We are a singing people. To say you are not the singing type is like a fish saying they're not the swimming type. Okay, you don't have to have a music degree. You don't need to know all the words. You don't need to know the melodies. Heck, you don't even have to sound good. There's enough of us. It'll cover you up, okay? (laughs) But if you are a Christian, a believer in Jesus Christ, you are the singing type. So sing. Why? Sing because the person in front of you may have experienced a death in their family that is causing unexplainable grief. Sing because the person on your left may be struggling with a stronghold that is wreaking havoc on their relationships. Sing because the couple on your right may be struggling in their marriage. Sing because your brothers and sisters need you. I need you. We need each other. Through psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, we preach the life-giving message of Jesus Christ to one another. But to what end? Paul says in verse 17, he says, Whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So it's here that Paul sums up his appeal to the Colossian church regarding their corporate calling. Paul is saying that there is not one facet of their lives that isn't touched by the good news of Jesus. Not one iota of their existence is exempt from being in submission to the peace and the message of Christ. I want to recall something I said at the beginning. God has not just called us to be his people. He has, but also to live a certain kind of life. That life is marked by the gospel, and it cannot be separated from it. Therefore, We have an obligation to one another to live in peace and to preach the gospel to one another. That's our corporate calling. We do this through submission to Christ and singing. We get to experience life and freedom when we choose to submit ourselves to the Lordship of Jesus. When his peace becomes our ruling authority, we finally get to experience the sweetness God intends for our relationships with one another. We experience the power of the gospel when we choose to live in this submission. When his peace rules, we flourish. 
Similarly, we're accountable to see one another, see that the message of Christ dwells in us richly. And one way we do this is by singing to one another. Our obedience to God through Monday, Monday through Saturday begins in our discipleship here. Our Sunday morning gathering is our team huddle, okay? That's what this is. If you live in a Greek house, this is our family meeting. This hour that we spend together is a rehearsal for our lives the rest of the week. We get to work the gospel into our spiritual muscles, training our hearts and minds to be obedient to Jesus Christ. Now, my goal in this is not to make you feel guilty about not singing. And certainly there is a time and place to just simply listen and to let the words wash over you. There is a time and place for that. Do not misunderstand me. But I do want to inspire you to see your part in the tradition of the church for thousands of years, as well as most importantly, the commands of Scripture. You have a role to play in our unity and our understanding of the gospel. We lose something when you are not here. We need you. I need you. This thing we do here on Sunday mornings is not just a formality to keep Christians busy on Sundays. It's essential to your discipleship, to my discipleship, to our calling. My appeal for us today is that we would see the immense gravity of our corporate calling and to own our individual roles in making that calling a reality. By living in submission to Jesus and preaching the gospel to one another regularly, we actually have a shot at seeing the gospel take root in our lives, in our families, our neighborhoods, and in our city. Our corporate calling is to let the peace of Christ rule in our hearts, to let the message of Christ dwell in us in a rich way. We do this by submitting, by singing to one another, by preaching the gospel to one another. So think about your life. Are you submitting to the lordship of Jesus in everything that you do? What things do you need to lay down, to lay aside, and give to him, and trust him with it? Are you willing to sing so that the message of Christ would dwell not only in your heart, but also in the hearts of your brothers and sisters in Christ? We're going to respond today by allowing just for that. We're going to sing a song of praise that reminds us of who we are in Jesus. These are the things that are most true. The worship team is going to come up and lead us in doing theology together. By singing to God and to one another, we are going to do ministry as a family. May the message of Christ dwell in us richly today. Lord, we need you. We need you to help us do these things, to commit ourselves and our lives to living in submission to your Lordship. And God, give us the vision, Lord. Remind us, Lord, that all of these things are for our good. We are most free. We, are, we flourish, Lord, when we are living in submission to you, Jesus. Your way 
is so much better than our ways. And Lord, help us to have a vision for our roles here and our singing together. Lord, help us to take ownership of the importance of that, that we would know our role, that we are ministers to one another in this time. Thank you for this corporate gathering, Lord. It is such a gift to us, and we do not take it for granted. And most of all, Lord, thank you for Jesus. Thank you that our sins, though they are many, God, your mercy is so much more. We love you and we give you this time. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.